they're playing a game in New York. They, New they York, beat yeah. the jump. They, yeah, they beat the giants and, and then uh, before they hop on the train to head to Detroit, they've got to, they've got to survive first, right? It's like, you know, a sequel to the running man where they're spinning their way through a maze out of the back of the clubhouse. I want to say that's the episode where chance literally gets hit in the throat with a bottle and tears cartilage in his throat and can't talk for two weeks i mean we are just we are just talking absolute chaos if you had the chance to have a beer with your favorite baseball player what would you talk about would you ask the same tired questions like every reporter after the game how did you feel what was going through your mind yada 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 probably not it's time you hear the stories that these players have never told. This is the Setup Man Podcast, where we have conversations that every fan wants to hear and the stories that every player and coach deserve to share. Let's get started. Hey, welcome in Setup Nation and happy early Thanksgiving. I'm really excited to be bringing you our final interview episode of the year. And you're probably wondering, what do you mean final episode? of the year. No, not final episode, final interview episode of the year with one of our uh, MLB figures because starting actually yesterday, if you missed it, we had our first side segment of Rumor Has It. If you have not checked this out, you need to. It's hot stove season. It's the off season. Everyone's wondering where everyone's going, what players ending up with what team. And so we are bringing you MLB beat reporters from all 30 teams giving us the inside scoop on what they're hearing, on what's going on behind the curtains, on what we can expect from the winter meetings coming up in just a couple weeks. And so you need to check that out. It's where you find all of our episodes at setupman.net or your favorite podcast platform or on YouTube as well. Now, today is Jason Cannon. This is a really unique interview. This is a baseball author. And the reason I brought Jason on is because he has some amazing stories about some prolific historical baseball figures from Willie McCovey to Billy Williams to even Charlie Murphy, who was the owner of the Chicago Cubs back when they first won the World Series in the early 1900s. And so a couple books that he has written. First is already out, Charlie Murphy, the iconoclastic showman behind the Chicago Cubs. We're going to talk a little bit about that book. But then another book that's actually coming out in the beginning of 2024, and we're going to give you a little bit of a sneak peek to. In fact, when we did the episode with Jason, we didn't even have a uh, a name for the book. Jason didn't even have the uh, the title yet, and so that was really exciting as you were getting to be able to hear all these stories that Jason reveals before the title ever came out. And the name of that book now, as it has been re- or getting ready to be released, is called A Time for Reflection, The Parallel Legacies of Baseball Icons, Willie McCovey and Billy Williams. And you think to yourself, Willie McCovey, Giants, Billy Williams, Cubs, how are were, how were their ties? There's actually a lot of ties, and it's really a unique story. So we're going to hear from Jason, especially about Charlie Murphy, who... Jason probably knows more about Charlie Murphy than anyone left on this earth. And then some really cool stories behind the Hall of Famers, Willie McCovey and Billy Williams. Let's get to it right now with Jason Cannon here on the Setup Man podcast. You're the author of Charlie Murphy, not not Charlie Murphy, Eddie Murphy's brother, but Charlie Murphy, <laughs> the owner of the Chicago Cubs back in the early 1900s, the iconoclastic showman behind the Chicago Cubs. And you have an upcoming book. 
that, you know, drum roll, please. We don't even have a, a name for yet. That's how fresh it is. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about that today as well. Uh, but I just thought this was crazy. Fun fact about you, you're still a high school teacher. And so my question is like, are, are you struggling sometimes to like want to talk about baseball versus actually teaching your kids English, which is what you teach? <laughs> there is without question uh, a series of moments throughout the week where instead of reading about supporting claims, let's take a look at a box score. Yeah. And Heck let's yeah. see what let's <laughs> see what type of claim you could support with that. Uh, definitely uh, an allure to doing that. Never happens. Doesn't line up to standards. It should. I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, take it up with the board, right? Uh, That's it. That's it. Where are the priorities? Let's go. There you go. Well, hey, um, I, I want to start with, you know, this first book that you wrote about Charlie Murphy and not mm -hmm. jumping into the book yet, but actually the story behind it, because I had the pleasure of hearing this when we first got introduced over the phone. I want people to hear this story of just leading up to why this book about Charlie Murphy and all the obstacles that led into you actually getting this thing published. So I was working on my PhD down at TCU. I, I taught English for a while and was looking to switch over to, to teach history at, uh, with uh, some of the older students. Um, and so I was, I was working on that. And during those uh, three, four years, I came across um, the story of, of Charlie Murphy really in uh, 2016 after the Cubs have won the pennant. And I thought this is a really fascinating guy. I had not heard of him before and did a little digging around. And I thought, boy, there's a ton here when it comes to business history, public relations history, sure. uh, so on and so forth uh, in, a, in a very consequential town in America in the early 20th century. I thought this would be a perfect dissertation topic. And so I spent, quite a few months putting together a proposal as I finished my coursework, um, put together a, a committee, had a few members already going in. Uh, and then when it came time to really uh, submit that proposal, uh, and then it really gets down to business, uh, they, we just didn't see eye to eye. Uh, they, they didn't particularly care for the proposal. I think a little too sports oriented for them. Okay, so I refashioned it. Uh, three times over the course of three semesters mm. and uh, they just didn't view the project as academically strong enough. I would crack up to myself and, and laugh and rework it and resubmit it and get the same answer. And so finally I reached a point where I just, I said, this isn't happening. And it was interesting. Another professor actually came to me and said, Hey, I've heard you're having problems with this project. I've got another project. It's completely different, but I know your uh, the effort you've put into this proposal. So I know what you're capable of. Would you be interested in working under me on this totally different topic? So I thought about it, but ultimately I was so fascinated by Charlie Murphy's story that I said, you know, the right thing for me to do, uh, perhaps not everybody, but the right thing for me to do was to leave school and and finish the book. And at that point, in the midst of that back and forth dynamic, I had been just working on the side the entire time. And so, yeah, so I finished my coursework. I was in school for four, four and a half years. And, you know, I got, I got uh, a high five and a lot of horn frog gear that I no longer wear out of it. And oh uh, yet it was probably the, it was 
probably uh, Kyle, the toughest decision of my entire career, but probably the best sure. one. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, that I was able to finish it. And, and uh, I hope people enjoy Charlie's story. So uh, the first question that I have for that is what was so interesting about Charlie that made you so passionate about this topic rather than taking this other project that you had from another teacher and potentially, you know, getting uh, your degree and moving on. To me, Charlie Murphy is, uh, he's the beginning stages of the modern day owner. And whether that's business philosophy, public relations philosophy, um, even roster construction, he was, you know, he's 90 years ahead of his time in certain ways, maybe not as many decades ahead, you know, maybe not a century ahead of everybody, but he uh, was eccentric and, and, and egocentric uh, at times like Ray Kroc. He was a World Series or bust uh, like George Steinbrenner. He yeah. brought quirky promotions to the ballpark. Uh, no donkeys, but, you know, reminds me of Charlie O'Finley. So in a way, it became this story where I could see modern owners, where I could see Charlie in splices of them. Yeah. And uh, it just, it got its claws into me and, and never let go. That's so cool. So no regrets. You, you go on, you write this book. So when you wrote this book though, like one of the things that I'm doing when I'm reading this whole thing is like, man, looking back uh, over a hundred years ago, when you're writing this thing, there must've been challenges of getting the facts straight and your sources like what is that what goes into that of actually making sure like you're hitting these things on the head and not just getting random things from people who are 90 100 years old who don't remember yesterday you know for lack of a better <laughs> no it's true right <laughs> if i if i've learned anything it's that memories can be faulty right and so yeah i think i think for me uh the the most important thing was to make sure i had a second piece of evidence okay and if i could if i could not confirm it with a second piece of evidence even if it was a really compelling story or a really compelling antidote, I, I had to let it go because I, I, I was concerned that, uh, as I got to know Charlie a little bit better over the course of several years, I, I didn't always trust what came out of his mouth. And, um, beyond that, I wasn't always sure what the motivations of an individual speaking would be. Right. So it's a great question and it was a challenge. And so there was, there was a lot that ended up, uh, on the cutting room floor because you couldn't confirm it. And yeah. it was interesting because Charlie did not have any children. And so he was a prolific writer, but nowhere do any of his writings exist. I, I held out hope for four years that they would be discovered somewhere throughout the course of the process. And they never were. And I still hope that someone finds them. And if, if they're found, I'll be the first one in line to try to see them. Um, but my, my guess is just his stuff got tossed at some point after his passing away. And it's really unfortunate. So with that, I thought, well, where, where can I possibly find any, any correspondence? And, and that's where um, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, the Giamatti Research Center, has archives. Uh, Gary Herman, who was the president of the Reds at the time, this guy, he, OCD is an understatement. He kept carbon copies of all the letters that came into his office and that he sent out. So most of the papers I found that were Murphy's were actually categorized 
under Herman's correspondence because that's where they were kept and filed, which makes perfect sense. But um, it was only because of those documents that I was able mm -hmm. to confirm a lot of the, the anecdotal stories and, and, and get the business side of the game. So it was a fascinating process. A lot of digging around. His um, his great grandniece Amy Asbeck and I had a couple conversations over the course of the project. Uh, your your listeners may know her from Wings um, and and other television shows that she was in. She was in a, a hilarious movie Problem Child when I was a kid, and uh, we had a number of conversations. And she was really she's really really into family history and knows a ton. And so even she and I would go back about, Hey, what did you learn? What do you know? What documents, what photos, these types of things. And, um, so you could piece some things together that way, but, but by and large there, there wasn't a whole lot in terms of here's Murphy's papers. Here's how they get passed down. Here's where they're archived. That in and of itself doesn't exist. Wow. Okay. So really quick, cause we, we kind of skipped ahead here. I, I want you to just really quickly, if you were to summarize Charlie Murphy and his story, uh, I know the the book is somewhere close to 300 pages, so I'm not asking you to, to give me the the 300 page version. But if there was like a 30 to 60 second version that would encourage people to go check out this book, how would you describe Charlie? How would you describe his story? Charlie is really representative of the quintessential American story, right? It we can argue whether it's uh, a fable, a dream, reality. Charlie's parents were Irish immigrants. They came over, uh, forced really to come over as a result of the Great Famine in the middle of the 19th century. And Charlie is born in a small town outside of Cincinnati. And he is a drug clerk in downtown Wilmington, Ohio, as a teenager, works his way up, uh, moves to Cincinnati, and becomes a journalist becomes uh, a, a valued employee of uh, the future brother-in-law, half-brother-in-law of the president of the United States. And in 1905, finds himself the owner of the Chicago Cubs. It is a story that is incredibly unique. We've never seen since and we'll never see again. And then once he became the owner, that's where a lot of these crazy antics started to be put on center stage. I, some of the... Some of the things, like I wrote down a few that I read from the book. I mean, bringing the bear cubs, like he had two bear cubs at the the stadium. That was crazy <laughs> to me. Uh, insisting that players get escorted via carriages and not letting them like actually just walk to the ballpark because he thought they were going to get harassed and calling players out to the media before actually, actually having those one-on-one -on -one conversations. And my favorite actually was when he personally invited Teddy Roosevelt to come to the world series, knowing full and well that Teddy Roosevelt hates baseball. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and that's the marketing genius at work, right? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's trying to make sure that college football gets zero headlines in the fall. And he's trying to make sure that baseball has them year round. And so whether it's, uh, Asking Teddy Roosevelt out, even though he knows he's going to get denied, he's still going to do it because it generates a headline and a story. And uh, you're 100% right. There are all kinds of examples of quirky things he did to draw attention to himself, to the Cubs, to the business, to the sport. And uh, he was always up to something. No question about that. Of all the stories that you heard and that you published, what was your favorite about Charlie? That's such a great question. Uh, I, I think my favorite is 
Um, it's interesting you mentioned Roosevelt. One of the byproducts of uh, the the no fear aspect of his attitude was he befriended uh, William Howard Taft, and uh, his his business partner at the time was Charles Taft, his older uh, half brother, the older half brother of the president. And Charlie and President Taft were friends, genuinely mm -hmm. friends, and. Murphy wanted the president to enjoy an afternoon at the West Side grounds. Come on out to Chicago when you're available. We'd love to have you out at the ballpark and host you. And Taft was all for it. And it took a few years for them to make it happen. Uh, it happens in 1909. Um, and that's after Taft's already visited Pittsburgh. And, and, and you know, it's not his inaugural visit to, to a National League ball game. But he does make it out to the West Side grounds. And it's really one of the crowning achievements of of Murphy's ownership tenure because, you know, to your point, you know, Roosevelt did not like the game of baseball. Taft loved it. And Taft is one of those figures now in baseball history that we know uh, loved the game, promoted the game, was all about the game. Uh, and the Murphy-Taft friendship really, uh, I, I realized, hadn't been explored very much. And so mm. when I was at the National Archives, you can read their exchange of letters and uh, congratulations. And I thought that was really neat. And I, I think that became really my favorite story is Taft's visit to the park, the the crowd reacting to him, uh, uh, you know, in such an excited, enthusiastic manner. Um, it was a cool story. Really enjoyed that one. Some of the, the controversial ones, too, like, you know, calling out Frank, Frank Chance uh, to the media before actually talking to Frank Chance. Share, share a little bit about that story and why you think Charlie, even though, uh, a lot of the players up until that point seemed to have his back. It seemed like he kind of started to make a change to where it was more about, it, it felt like it was more about the attention than it was actually winning and, uh, and building a good team. Can you just share that story and your thoughts on that? So after the, the 1908 world series, 1909, the, the pirates dominate the national league. No one was beating Pittsburgh that year. Mm -hmm. They win it all. The Cubs get back to the World Series in 1910, and they, they lose to Philadelphia. And after that, Murphy starts to grip a little bit because he sees that the core of the roster is starting to age. Yeah. And he recognizes that the team is not going to be able to compete on the same level moving forward. Well, for some, and I, and I believe me, I looked, for some outlandish reason, Murphy gets into this mindset where chance is contributing a, a contributing factor to the problem. And what's wild about even the notion of that is that Frank chance literally gave his physical body for the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about deaf in one ear, beamed in the head with fastballs a number of times concussed mm. repeatedly. Johnny Evers at one point says, I used to yell at him when I was standing at second base because I knew he couldn't hear me out of his bad ear. So wow. I used to say things to him that I knew that if he had heard me, he would have come over and, and drill, you know, <laughs> I would have got got. <laughs> Crap out of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is the last guy that ever should have been criticized. And yet mm. Murphy points to him and heaps some of the blame on the manager of the team. Part of that dynamic is that Johnny Evers and Joe Tinker did not like each other one bit. And so, uh, you know, hey, Frank, take care of this. Well, that was never going to happen. And so it's a huge mistake. And then when Chance is ill, 
uh, Murphy goes public with some criticisms and Chance is understandably so wounded so deeply yeah. uh, and offended to such a degree that their relationship is shattered and, and never able to be repaired. And, and not long after that, uh, Chance is managing the Yankees and um, gone from Chicago, uh, uh, you know, out of the Cubs organization. And uh, biggest mistake Murphy made in his career. No question about it. So I guess, you know, just as you got to know Murphy as a person, did you see that being part of a shift in him or what do you think the core of why he did that? Cause it wasn't the first, it wasn't the last time he did it. He did it with a few players, uh, just blatantly calling them out in front of the, the media. What, what at the core of him do you think either changed or was in him that made him do something like that? Murphy was a survivor as a young kid, as a teenager. Mm -hmm. His father was in and out of city jail and mm -hmm. was unreliable for the family. And so Charlie had to go to work and support his mom and siblings. And so he was a survivor, which allowed him to, uh, you know, really be successful, network, figure out ways to make things work. He was relentless. Well, when he reached a point in his life where he had to flip the switch from surviving to thriving, he couldn't do it. And there are a number of instances in his life where if he had just taken the foot off the gas pedal and just taken in his surroundings yeah. and breathed, I think he would have seen that his entire world had completely changed. He never did it. And I think that's really at the heart, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's probably a fool's errand to even suggest any type of, uh, you know, trying to analyze someone, uh, you know, a hundred years later, but it, sure. it, there is a line of demarcation to your point where you just say, Charlie, what are you doing? And part of it as well as he, he got a little uh, over his skis in terms of giving himself too much credit to say, I can, I, I I've learned a lot, but now I can really figure out a way to build a new young core moving forward as the roster turns over. He thought he could do it, whereas he had had a ton of input from Chance before, and he couldn't. Wow. I, I'm getting strong Steinbrenner vibes from the guy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, we've seen it. We've seen it in future years. It's it's really quite something. Um, yeah. And uh, you'll see a few guys. You'll see a few, you'll see a few owners for sure. Especially, you know, once that – Jeter documentary came out and you hear Steinbrenner throwing Jeter under the bus a couple times to the media before actually having a conversation with him. It's just like, that's yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of hit it on the head. He was ahead of his time in both good ways and bad. So uh, it's really interesting to see that. I guess one of the other things that stood out to me just in general about the book, not necessarily about Charlie was, you know, you got guys like Frank chance literally getting death threats from the mob before playoff games and that just was like whoa like how times have changed so when you went through writing the book <laughs> like what were some of the things that stood out to you that you're like wow either times of baseball or the times of of an era even just in general of how we live life have changed dramatically what are some of the things that stood out for you that's a great question i think the number one thing that jumps out at me is it, it kind of fits in perfectly with that story is it ac access for the everyday fan uh, the access the everyday fan had to the players, yeah. uh, whether they were, you know, they were on, I know, you know, you can look at old photos and see, you know, they're, they're standing along the, uh, the, the, the line that would, uh, mark the end where the outfield ends and the fans begin. They're standing out there. Um, 
you know, Mordecai Brown before the, the famous game in 1908, the game that's, uh, uh, you know, a big part of that history. He has to work his way out of the bullpen, out onto the field in the first inning, but he's, he's fighting his way through the crowd. It's and crazy. at one point, at one point they're yelling at him and he says, fine, bring it. You know, he's, you know, someone's like, you know, the hell with all <laughs> you guys, I'll take you all on too, on my way out to the mound. And, uh, just the, just the, literally the physical access people yeah. had just, it really was, was quite something. I, I, I think, I think the other thing is, um, that goes along with that though, the relationship that the players and the fans had. Uh, and really how, how tight knit it was, uh, you, you, you would see them all the time, uh, outside of, uh, outside the ballpark. Uh, they, they work jobs in the off season. Um, there wasn't, an, uh, an, an everyday individual quality about them during that era that, that really jumped out. And that that's, that's different, uh, from, from the era today, for sure. I mean, when we think about one of the most iconic memories that I have, I wasn't born this time, but we see the video all the time of Hank Aaron hitting number 715 and literally players or uh, fans coming yeah. out and high five him as he's around in second base. Right. And you're talking about, they're literally not even in the stands. They're actually on the field is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes, and absolutely. It's wild. And th there's another, you know, it's funny the, um, earlier we had talked about the carriages where they're going to and from the hotel and the carriages, there was a, like a near riot in Philadelphia one year because um, the, the, you know, the, the Cubs had left the ballpark and went on their back to the hotel and the fans encountered them and it was a game on situation. <laughs> I mean, it's just, there are a lot more moments of chaos, Kyle, let's put it that way. A lot, a lot, of, a lot more moments of chaos. Well, and maybe I'm remembering this wrong. I, I read, I read, you know, this book a couple weeks ago, but I'm pretty sure was it either the 1907 world series or uh, the, the series right before the world series where they had won and they couldn't even celebrate because they were literally getting mobbed by the away team fans and trying to beat up the Cubs to where they had to wait until they got to their hotel room to actually celebrate. Yeah. So they're playing a game in New York. They, New they York, beat yeah. the, they, yeah, they beat the giants and, and then, uh, before they hop on the train to head to Detroit, they've got to, they've got to survive first right it's like you know a sequel to the running man where they're spinning their way through a maze out of the back of the clubhouse around the pillars where they hide get to the carriage uh you know i i want to say that's the episode where chance literally gets hit in the throat with a bottle and tears cartilage in his throat and can't talk for two weeks I mean, oh, I we are, Holy I mean, we are just, we are just talking absolute chaos and, um, incredible stuff. Can't make it up. Right. I mean, just literally can't make it up. I'm trying to think back. I'm, I, I think the last time that fans actually like went onto a field, I want to say, was it, um, oh gosh, uh, who was, he, he was, uh, the guy who, um, had, charge nolan ryan um Val valentine oh, ventura ventura thank you hadn't been didn't ventura hit a, a walk-off grand slam to go to the playoffs and uh like got stopped at first base by all the fans and ended up being a walk-off <laughs> do you remember that or, or am i making that up no i i i don't remember it myself but that that doesn't mean that you know you're Maybe gonna see his teammates 
I, I need to look see, that up. Yeah, well, you're I mean, yeah, you're gonna see incidents now yeah. and then where you get a yeah. couple people jumping on the field, but yeah, um, you know, I've heard I've heard stories about that 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 incident you're talking about. You mentioned the Henry Aaron's home run. Yeah. And I would have to look it up, but I I want to say there are stories where there, you know, there were people protecting Henry Aaron. And when those guys jumped out on the field, like they were having to think through what's happening and what's my appropriate reaction going to be. And very, very much so, right? Like that's a very real thing. So um, yeah, it is, it's, it's wild stuff to think about what was happening during the dead ball era. And that's, that's one of the things that makes the dead ball era so much fun to study and read about is, is you never know what you're going to come across. It's crazy. All right. Before we transition to the book that uh, you have yet to release, which is super exciting for me as a Cubs fan as well. um, Let's let's let me ask you just is there anything else that we didn't talk about with Charlie or this era of the Cubs that is uh, super interesting for our audience to hear? I think the one thing I would just add or or maybe emphasize is, you know, all, all these years later, you know, Charlie Murphy's tenure of of owning the Cubs is is still the most successful span in franchise history. Uh, mm. Four pennants in five years with two World Series titles. Um, they were upset in 06. Um, the White Sox got them. They beat them. They deserved to win. They played better. And none of the, the Cubs argued that fact. Um, and then the A's got them in 10. But, you know, it, it's really amazing. He, he and Chance uh, partnered together uh, in, in a really – a harmonious way where chance would say, Hey, I'm interested in acquiring this guy. What can we do? And Murphy was like, I'll make it happen. I'll go have meetings and figure it out. And then there are other times where Murphy would go to chance and say, Hey, what if we get this guy? And chance is like, there's no way we're getting Jimmy Shepard. Like it's not happening. And then Murphy would come back three days later from the winter meetings and we got him. And so they had, I think that's the one thing I would just emphasize is before it all went haywire and it did, uh, these two guys put together an incredible team. And in 1906, uh, they, they won more games than any professional team up until that point. And, and that record stood until the Mariners tied it, you know, uh, nearly a hundred years later. So pretty, with, pretty amazing with more stuff. games. With more games. Yeah. And they had a few more. Yeah. They had a few more to play. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. So this new book that you're working on, Billy Williams and William McCovey, first of all, uh, was this just a natural transition from working on a a Cubs book or how did this next topic come up for you? I grew up in California, um, a Giants fan. And and when I was working on the Murphy project, um, McCovey sadly passed away in 2018. And when I saw the news and read the articles, I thought, well, I, I'm curious. I can't remember off the top of my head some of the different aspects of his life. So let me just grab the book off my shelf and kind of earmark it. When I'm done working on this, I want to dive back into that and revisit his life and career, you know, as kind of a retrospective after his passing. And I looked and I, I see a b- books on Mays, Marischal, uh, Mashi Murakami, you know, Felipe Alou, uh, no McCovey. And mm. I was... I was just kind of surprised by that. So I wrote it down on a little post-it note, a note to myself that, Hey, at the end of all this, let me revisit the uh, idea of doing something on him. And um, when this project was finished, I did revisit. And as far as I could tell, nothing had been done in the interim. So I started working on that. And then 
the the really amazing part of the story too to come in terms of how they both came together was uh, working with the Cubs uh, with Murphy. They were great and getting to know them a little bit. There was a connection there with uh, Billy Williams and uh, partnering with telling some of his stories. And so I, I thought about that, the two of them together. And I thought, well, I, I don't know. I've never really pictured putting the two of them together. But as soon as I sat down and started researching it, they're both born in 1938, about five and a half months apart. They're born about five miles away from each other. Wow. They knew each other when they were younger playing basketball. Uh, Billy's older brother, Franklin, and Willie played in the same minor league, uh, uh, the, the same minor league, if you will, lack of a better term, uh, in, in, in the mid-50s. Um, so they grew up in the Mobile, Alabama area. And I thought, wow, okay, I didn't know that. And so then you keep digging in Henry Aaron's from Mobile, Tommy Aaron's from Mobile, Tommy Agee's from Mobile, Cleon Jones, uh, Satchel Page, of course, who was old, the, the, you know, the generation before. And so then I, I, I thought, well, this seems like really an interesting, unique fit because they both have similar stories, too, in terms of their career. They have the what ifs of their career, fair, unfair. McCovey lines out to end the 62 World Series. That's kind of a, a thing in his career. Billy Williams, the 69 Cubs. Uh, the Mets track them down late in the year and the, the, <clears throat> the Mets go on to win the World Series. And so. If either one of those two clubs wins the World Series, I think they're thought of in terms of national narrative a little bit differently. Uh, sure. And you also think about playing with Banks, playing with Mays. Uh, they both play in the shadow of two guys who are just incredible all-time greats. So um, after thinking it through and, and talking to a few people, I thought, let's partner them together. Everybody was uh, amenable to it. And so, yeah, I've been working on it for, for about 18 months. That's amazing. Uh, you, you, like you said, you just don't know until you actually start digging, but as you started to dig, it sounds like their paths and their stories are very similar. Is that kind of the theme of the book or what, what's the main theme that, that ends up being kind of the core of this book uh, for people to expect? That's a great question. They are threaded together in terms of, of theme of, of commonality. I think part of it is their, their personalities. Part of it is their uh, excellence. And then part of it is trying to figure out the stories about two guys where, to some extent, narratives for some baseball fans have been established. But what are the what are the facts behind those narratives? What are some of the stories behind their narratives? Two great players. I mean, these guys are icons in the cities and uh, statues out front of each park, um, retired numbers, the whole bit. And. I wondered if fan, fans in other cities around the country um, were were as plugged into the the success these two guys had as Chicago and San Francisco. And so the 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 common theme is my hope to by telling their stories is to learn a little bit about them as as individuals, um, but but also about their great careers. And I think people will enjoy it. Um, uh, Billy has just been incredible to talk to. He's got stories forever and uh, it's amazing too to talk to the guys who played with and against them and you can tell pretty quickly who guys really really respect and know mm -hmm. are the real deal and everyone you talk to uh mac and and billy were at the top of their craft incredible teammates and great great players and you hear that over and over and so 
I, I hope people will, will enjoy it. And there's, there's, there's some fascinating stories in there too. I hope they, they like. So you wrote a book about Charlie Murphy after he's deceased. So documentation, Willie McCovey, a lot of the same thing, except for I'm sure with it being closer to his death, there's a lot more documentation, but then with Billy Williams, you actually get to hang out with the guy Describe to me how awesome that was and what that allowed you to do to add more validity to the book by actually having access to Billy. Yeah, it was a first for me. I haven't had that yeah. experience for you. And so it was, I, I didn't know quite how it would work. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go in with a set of questions and you just kind of see where it'll take you. And I, I think the most, I, I think the most special thing about being able to talk to him is the emotion in his voice when he either talks about certain events or perhaps there's something that happened. Um, um, you know, I give you an example. I asked him at one point, I had talked to one of his younger teammates who was in their early 20s when they played with Billy. And he said, Billy was such a wonderful teammate and mentor. And so I asked Billy about that. I said, why was it important to you to be a mentor to young players. And he said, well, you know, Ernie did it for me. Mm. Ernie did it for me. Cool. And he said, so I wanted to make sure that other players uh, felt the way that Ernie made me feel. And I want to teach them about the game of baseball, but I want to teach them about life and how to be young men. And, you know, to hear the emotion in his voice when he emphasized that, it just struck me in a very profound way, um, particularly when we think about, you know, the, the bulk of his career is spent the 1960s, the first half of the 1970s. And he's serving as a mentor to young players during during a, a, a very tumultuous time in American history. And um, they adore him. Mm. decades later, half a century later, and remember advice that he gave. And so the opportunity to hear those stories from him and, and be able to understand kind of what, what he was thinking as it was happening uh, has added a depth to that part of the story that I, I think um, will, will hopefully add a dimension to, to his, his life and legacy uh, that readers will get a chance to, to check out in the book. And I'm excited about that. That's really cool. As you mentioned that one of the first questions that comes to my mind is what is one of those stories that we didn't see that you got to hear about behind the scenes uh, during, you know, like you said, tumultuous time in our history, especially with an African-American playing baseball. Does any story come to mind for you? Yeah, there's a couple, you know, that he, uh, Billy and Shirley used to host dinners at their home in Chicago and, they would have players over to their homes. And so this happened throughout the United States during this time is as the African-American players were traveling from city to city and in, in, in an era where there, it was not unusual whatsoever for them not to have restaurants to go and to be allowed into restaurants. And so they would host dinners at their homes and the players would go over and they would share a meal together. And if there was a young player there, uh, the veterans would basically provide advice. Here's the town you're in. Here's where you can go. Here's where you don't go. Here's how this works. And I, I, I think 
first of all, to even hear a story like that is just, um, I don't know. To, I don't even know if I could put it in words to hear a story mm. from someone who's actually doing, has experienced that. It's just horrific. And, um, Yet that was a very much part, that was a relationship building thing that they did in cities throughout. Uh, I could speak specifically about the National League. There's another one that, that he, he told me that a little bit different, a little bit different. But when he's traded to Oakland after the 74 season, he joined the Oakland A's. Um, at one point, he had a conversation with Reggie Jackson. And Reggie asked if, if, they could room next to each other on the road. And Billy said, I recognized at that point, you know, the demands on this guy. He was becoming a, a superstar at that point. So right. he said, absolutely, absolutely. And so um, they roomed next to each other. He said they had a wall between them with a door. If the door was open, they would talk baseball. They would talk life. If one of them decided to shut the door, they just relax and, and watch television. And he said it was just an opportunity for them to build their relationship and Billy could just be a sounding board whenever mm. Reggie needed him. And of course they would talk baseball as well. And, uh, you know, that just speaks to who Billy is and his, his character as, as a man to, to just, he, uh, loves people and, and does everything he can for them. And those were a couple of examples that, really stood have stood out to me over the course of talking to him. That's really cool. Uh, going over to Willie McCovey, you know, you said mm -hmm. you're a giants fan and this is a guy yeah. that you, you kind of have idolized. And I know he wasn't necessarily playing, uh, while you were growing up, um, his time had already passed, but what was that experience like being able to hear secondhand from the people that you talked to about Willie and especially being a giants fan, did you have that warm, fuzzy feeling when you were, you know, <laughs> going, going down that route compared to the other topics that you've done? It's 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 been pretty amazing, Kyle. I mean, I I can't lie. Uh, when I'm sitting there, um, in a in a circle with a group of people, it's it's um, it's Mr. Cepeda and his family, wow. and it's it's Allison McCovey, Willie's daughter, and we're we're sitting in a little circle, maybe five five or six of us, and having a conversation about, about stretch. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. And, um, Isipeta shares the story about the camp that they go to, um, 1955 in Melbourne, Florida. Um, McCovey's taken a, a bus from the West coast where he was out visiting his brother. Cepeda's flown in obviously, and they meet each other early on in this camp. Uh, this tryout camp and, and, and stretch struggled the first day and got some encouragement and then started hitting line drives. And, and, and Cepeda just said, I could still hear the sound of the line drives that came mm. off McCovey's bat. Pow, pow. And then he, he told a great joke. He said, it's the same sound as the fork in his left hand when he was getting after dinner after the, <laughs> after the ball game, the pow of the fork into the dinner. Cause the guy, eight to no end uh he was just the uh, this huge guy right uh same sound uh but i that is, i mean that is just it's priceless it's all priceless um on uh with everybody but 
Um, that was uh, that was a special day for sure. That's really cool. How, how much did Billy and Willie actually interact? Was there stories that you heard from Billy as well? Or did you feel like when you were talking to Billy, it was more about his journey and then you had to go over to the giant side to learn more about Willie? It's a good question. You know, they intertwine more, uh, more than one might think, um, okay. whether it was, uh, you know, uh, when they were younger, they, they both enjoyed playing basketball. They knew each other in the, the mobile area. Uh, McCovey was down the bay. So he was closer to the water where Billy was up near Whistler, but they were, you know, knew who each other knew who familiar with each other. Um, and then as they moved forward, they, interacted quite a bit the they would all get together as a group in mobile before spring training started and they would work out together so they'd spend a couple weeks they'd set up uh on a on a field uh noel screen so someone would be throwing bp and the one rule is you either you got to go the other way you can't go back up the middle because you're going to kill the guy and that's just the one rule so if you were driving your car riding your bike or walking past you know the park you would see a field full of I mean, you'd 1500 home runs if you need them, uh, working out for two weeks. Yeah. Uh, you know, Henry Aaron, Tommy Aaron, AG, Cleon Jones, wow. uh, all the, all the guys I mentioned earlier, Mac, Billy, and it, you know, Franklin Williams on and on. And so they did that every year. And then the line they gave each other afterwards was, you know, we'll see you down the road. We'll see you down the road. And so, uh, frequently that ended up being the all-star game. And, uh, you know, even beyond that, uh, they played, in Oakland together for a short stint, not particularly long, but at the end of Billy's career, uh, McCovey's in San Diego and they're ready to part ways and Charlie Finley acquires McCovey. And so there's a, a small window there where they play, oh, I don't know, maybe about five weeks together, but there's a couple of pictures oh. that appear of the two of them together. And, uh, you know, McCovey's being interviewed by a reporter and he said, hey, Billy's been one of my idols for a long time, a long time. And there's a, a wonderful shot of them in the clubhouse, you know, enjoying a laugh. And uh, so there is, you know, there is a lot more. It's very genuine, real friendship that they shared. That's really awesome. OK, so what else can we expect from this book when it gets released in 2024? Well, in addition to hearing a little bit about their personal stories, I think you're going to hear a lot of great baseball stories, which is, mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, what what uh, a lot of people will be interested in. You'll hear, uh, you'll be able to read a, a great story. Billy uh, was went eight for eight in a doubleheader against the Houston Astros one day uh, at the height of his uh, powers as a as a left-handed hitter and just an incredible incredible athlete. And so, what's what are the Astros going to do? Well, the next day they decide. The, the starting pitcher, he goes to uh, uh, get ready to deliver the first pitch. He, he tells his backstop, you know what we're going to do? We're going to tell Billy every pitch that's coming. We're just going to tell him what's coming. Oh, my gosh. And we can't get him out, so screw it. And a little bit, maybe? Sure, yeah, sure enough, uh, he grounds out to first base, and he he's hot. And uh, uh, so – Great story from uh, Jack Hyatt, who was who was a catcher on those those Astros team. And it wasn't the only time. You know, there's another time. McCovey was so hot in the spring training of 1969. That's the year he won the MVP. He was so hot in spring training, no one could get him out. He, hit, he hits a home run off Fergie Jenkins. And Fergie Jenkins tells me that uh, a, a few weeks later, early in the season, uh, they're playing in, in San Francisco. The Cubs are out there. And so... 
Fergie and Ernie Banks were rooming at the time together. And so their hotel phone rings and there's uh, trying to figure out Ernie says, go ahead and pick it up. Let's see what's going on. So Fergie picks up the phone and it's the front desk and the front desk says, well, uh, Mr. Jenkins, I just wanted to let you know that your car is here. Said, my car is here. What are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. What's going on there? He said, well, your car to take you to the ballpark. It says courtesy of Mr. McCovey. He wants to make sure you get to the ballpark on time today so you can make your start. <laughs> and so Fergie's like, this, and he's like, this is, yeah, he's like, this isn't happening. We're going to take it. Let's take the car. Let's take the car. So they all pile in. They take the car. And Jenkins does the same thing. He says, let's tell him what's coming. We're just going to tell him what's coming. And he said, sure enough, he went 0 for 3 against me that day. It became this huge thing, right? So they both have these great stories. Neither of them wanted to know what was coming in those oh moments, in those ball games. Uh, and so I, there's a lot of stuff like that I, I hope people enjoy. That's awesome. Man, I, I, I mean, the stories that are going to be in this book, but also the stories that you heard just must be pretty incredible. And, uh, I, I thank you for taking the time to put them into a book because now, uh, those that are listening, get the chance to go get it. So when we do have that name, right, we're going to release this podcast. We're going to tell people where to get the book and I can't wait for people to go hear it, or I should say, read it themselves. Well, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about it, Kyle. It's a lot, been a lot of fun. And, and you know, there's some interesting stories in there uh, as well in terms of, um, uh, you know, social change and, and, and not a lot of stories have been told about that, but um, I know Cepeda shared a few about, about Willie Mack and, and, and uh, learned a few about Billy too, that I, I think will, will um, deepen people's admiration uh, and, and respect for these two men. And so I'm excited to, to share those with people. Um, these two guys, both just incredible people and ball players. Awesome. All right, Jason, now is time for our 27th out. It's our rapid fire segment. You ready to rock and roll? I'm ready. All right. So we're going to do this a little bit different because you, you haven't played, you haven't coached, but you have no. been around a lot of guys yeah. who have played and coached. So I've, I've got a different twist on these. So first of all, all right. I want to know where does your passion for baseball come from? Was it a person? Was it a thing? Where did that start when you were younger? Great question. I grew up collecting baseball cards in the mid eighties, used to ride my bike down to the hall of fame baseball card shop, which is about a mile and a half away. And there was a gal that worked named Tamara. And eventually I was in there so frequently. She said, you just need to stick around and work. So I'm maybe 10, 11 years old. And she's like, answer the phones, help the customers do all the uh, things. So cool. And it was awesome. And <laughs> that, that deepened my love for the sport, for people around the game. Uh, for the hobby, all the things uh, that that was many years ago. But, but shout out Tamara, wherever you are today. Thank you, Tamara. Awesome. Uh, favorite player of all time? Will Clark. Cool. You're the second person to say that. Uh, believe it or not, Ted Lilly also said that. Uh, oh, nice. nice. Yeah. Favorite player now? Okay, this cliche. I'm going to kill you with this, but Otani. I remember. Well, I lived in Seattle in 2018, so it's May of 2018. And I went out to, they played a weekend series against the Angels. And on the Friday night, Pujols gets his 3,000th career hit. Nice. Otani's throwing on Sunday. So wife and I got to go check this out. I'm like, this guy, I've heard these things. I don't know. Sure, yeah. Pitch is super dynamic for six innings. Unbelievable. And I've been following him ever since. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Nice. All right. What's the best part about being a sports author? 
For me, it's exploring their impact on their sport, but also the culture at large. I think that dynamic, that interplay fascinates me the most. Okay. What's the worst part? Oh, there's always someone else I'm trying to talk to. I can't get a hold of. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Uh, nice. All right. Who's the favorite, your favorite person that you've interviewed? Oh, man. Billy Williams has been fantastic to talk to. He's been unbelievable. I mentioned sitting down with uh, Mr. Cepeda, just unbelievable. I actually did get the chance to talk with Will Clark, uh, interview him about McCovey. Did McCovey give you any advice about playing first base at the stick uh, and had a really cool conversation, learned a lot about not just McCovey as a mentor, but also how to play first base at the stick. And uh, that was surreal. That was surreal to talk to the thrill. It was awesome. So those are the, those are three that kind of jump out at me when you ask. Very cool. If a movie was made about either one of these books that you've written, uh, who is the one actor that you would love to have in the movie and who would they play? So someone wrote this in a review of Charlie Murphy. I cannot take credit as much as I would like to, but Zach Galifianakis, if you're out there <laughs> and need a role, you would be oh, perfect yeah. as Charlie Murphy. And I cannot take credit for that. But I, as soon as I saw that, I went brilliant, brilliant. Let's make it happen. I could see that or Jack Black. I could see either one of them. Yep. Oh, yep. that's another. Oh, perfect. Yes, yep. absolutely. Cool. All right. What's one life lesson, if any, that you learned from writing these books and meeting all the people that you have? I think the lesson I probably learned the most is stacking days of work one upon the other is a better process than having a grand vision and trying to hit all these uh, marks of perfection. It's just do a little bit of work every day, do it well. And after you've done that for six months, you look back and you actually see the vision being built as opposed to chasing something that's really hard to catch. I like it. Consistency. And our yeah. final pitch, the last question, who else that you have not written a book about would you like to write a book about? I would say for me, one of the most consequential reporters in American history, David Halberstam, uh, his influence on political writing and sports journalism that spanned the second half of the 20th century is unmatched. Uh, I've got I've got a lot of work left to do in order to earn the right to even explore a project about him. But I, I would love to write about David Halberstam. Awesome. Jason Cannon, thank you so much, man. This has been a lot of fun just talking shop and talking baseball uh congrats on the book that you've written which again guys is called charlie murphy the iconic classic showman behind the chicago cubs go get it it's on amazon it's anywhere that you just google it you'll find it and then of course we're going to go ahead and let you know when uh, we have a name for the billy williams and willie mccovey book and where to find that as well coming up in 2024 so thank you so much jason appreciate it kyle great to be with you all right, just like I mentioned, for the rest of 2023, tune in to Rumor Has It. We're bringing these out just about every day, uh, aside from during the holidays. And we will be back to you with our interviews with other players, with other coaches in the beginning of 2024. Please subscribe, leave your reviews, comment on the YouTube videos, share with three baseball friends of yours. Do it all. Please engage, especially on Instagram or on Twitter, which is setupmanpod on both of those. That's the name of our, our handle, setupmanpod. Anything that you guys do that is engaging with reviews and with the social medias and commenting on YouTube, all of that, I can't tell you how much 
that helps, but also how much it just warms me to know that like you guys are, are taking a look at this stuff. So that's really exciting for me. And again, happy Thanksgiving. That's going to do it for me here. Setup nation. I'm going to go put my arm on ice. We'll see you next time. <laughs>